Father, now guide and bless our time. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Father, may we be, as James implores us, not merely those who hear the word, but those who do the word as well. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In reading the Gospels, it's very easy to have a low opinion of the twelve disciples. After all, they do seem to be experts at missing the point. Jesus is continually telling them and showing them who he really is, and yet, time and time again, they seem bound and determined to absolutely miss the mark. But I think we ought to sympathize with them just a bit more than we probably do. In our text last week, the text that Les uh, opened up for us, we saw Jesus twice use a divine royal title for himself. Two times he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And in both of those instances, he uses that divine royal title in very different situations. In the first, he tells us that the Son of Man is going to be rejected and suffer and then be crucified. In the second, he speaks of the glory of the Son of Man and the fact that his return will be a triumphant one. And when we pause to wrap our hands around what Jesus is teaching, we can be a little bit more understanding of the confusion that the disciples experience. Which is it? Is the Son of Man going to suffer and be rejected and die, or is the Son of Man going to come in great glory? Well, the answer, of course, we know, is yes. It's both of those things. Jesus will suffer and be rejected and be crucified, and Jesus will return, not simply in his own glory, but in the glory of the Father and the heavenly host. Our text for this morning, then, Luke seeks to try to help to clarify again this kind of paradoxical life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. And he also helps us understand the utter inability of the disciples to grasp what it is that Jesus is showing and telling them. Now, on page five in your bulletin, you'll see an outline for our time together. You'll see there the big idea, which in one sentence, hopefully, is what the sermon is about. And here it is. The transfiguration clarifies the paradoxical life and ministry of Jesus. The transfiguration clarifies the paradoxical life and ministry of Jesus. Three points to make this morning. The first one is this. Uh, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the elephant in the room. In Matthew's gospel and in Mark's gospel, the, the texts that also cover the transfiguration, we have a little better time, a little easier time understanding the tension that surrounds Jesus' ministry and why the disciples aren't necessarily understanding it. Matthew and Mark both tell us that after Jesus makes the statement that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be rejected and he's going to suffer and he's going to die, that in each instance, Peter rebukes him. Peter tells him in no uncertain terms that he can't be thinking that way because, of course, Peter, better than anyone else, understood what Jesus' mission and ministry was really going to be 
about. And yet, the misunderstanding of the disciples does not fundamentally change Jesus' mission. Whether the disciples like it or not, Jesus is indeed going to be rejected, he is going to suffer, and he is going to be crucified. Now, not only is Jesus' ministry paradoxical, but his very essence, his very being, is paradoxical as well. Jesus is both fully God and he is fully man. Now, since Jesus is fully God, he knows all things. He has all power. He knows what is coming, and Jesus could easily destroy those who are seeking to destroy him. But as God, he also knows that this is the path he has to walk. Indeed, the Apostle Paul is going to remind us that this was the plan from eternity past. But Jesus is also fully human. And no human being likes to contemplate their own death. Furthermore, no human being likes to contemplate the kind of death that the Romans would hand out to people. Crucifixion was an unspeakably horrible way to die. One of the wonderful things about uh, what I get paid to do is that every week... Uh, I, I'm learn, I learn something new in the Bible, and it's, it's a wonderful privilege, and I'm grateful for it. And here's what I learned that was new this week. Uh, scholars believe that the transfiguration isn't just an event that identifies Jesus as God for the benefit of the disciples, right? So who is this? Well, you have God himself telling you who it is. Figure it out. But the transfiguration is also doing something else. It isn't just for the disciples. No, the purpose of the transfiguration was to encourage the fully human Jesus given the path that he had to walk. This isn't just about identifying him as God to the disciples. It's also about encouraging the God-man in his path to rejection and suffering and crucifixion. See, the elephant in the room is his coming passion and crucifixion. He wanted and needed to talk about it. As a human being, Jesus needed to be heard. Hey, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And not only am I going to die, but I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be scourged. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to face separation from God himself. I'm going to be crucified. But his disciples would not let him talk about it. They wanted nothing to do with it. Every time Jesus would mention it, he, they would try to keep his statements at arm's distance. Peter was so foolishly bold as to rebuke Jesus for even suggesting that this was somehow the Father's plan for his life. So what does God do? How does God encourage the God-man in his unenviable mission of his passion, his rejection, and his death? He sends Moses and Elijah to speak to Jesus of his departure. And that word departure literally is his exodus, verse 
31. Jesus is encouraged. Jesus is heard. Jesus can talk about how it is that the law and the prophets and indeed all of the Old Testament speak to the fact that God's Messiah is not one who's going to come and set up an earthly kingdom, but rather that God's Messiah is going to come and He's going to suffer and He's going to be rejected and He's going to die. I love these words from A.T. Robertson. He says, No one on earth understood the heart of Jesus, so the Father sent Moses and Elijah. The Psalms tells us that, doesn't it? God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. James tells us this as well. Well, friends, here's an example of God the Father sending God the Son a good and timely gift, a gift that he needs. Now, as shocking as it was this week, in fact, Amy and I were talking about this last night at the dinner table. She's like, "Um, you got to take a nap and watch football and you're still really quiet. What's going on? And I said, well, um, what's going on is there's this thing in the text that I really had never thought about before. And it's kind of freaking me out, to be honest. Right. We don't we think of Jesus as being the encourager, not as Jesus being one who needs this kind of encouragement. But he does. And so once I could wrap my hands around it, it's actually an encouragement to me as well. Because one of the roles that the Bible tells us that Jesus fulfills for us is that he's our great high priest. That Jesus intercedes for us. That he's been tempted as we are. That he understands and sympathizes with our weakness. Now, to be honest, I've always thought this was overstated just a little bit. Well, yeah, but he could turn water into wine. He can walk on waves. He can tell the storm to shut up and pipe down and go back to its room, and it does it. So thinking of Jesus as being someone who understands and sympathizes with my weakness never really struck home because I'd never seen Jesus' humanity in such stark terms before. So friends, let's understand this. When we need to be heard, when we need to be understood, and we all do, when there are things that we need to process that the human beings and the other human beings in our lives are just, they don't want to talk about it or they kind of want to keep it at arm's distance, understand then you can go to Jesus. Jesus understands what it's like to have something that he needs to talk about, that he needs to understand, that he needs to process, and he needs to be heard on, and there's nobody on earth who gets it. He's your guy. He's him. You can go to him, and you can tell him whatever it is that you're wrestling with, and whatever it is that you have going on, and whatever it is that you need to be heard on, Jesus is our great high priest. He was tempted as we were. He understands and sympathizes with our weakness. Secondly, we see a paradox wrapped in an enigma. We see a paradox wrapped in an enigma. So uh, Luke tells us that up to this point, the disciples who had gone up on the mountain with Jesus, the kind of inner circle, 
Peter, James, and John, they had gotten drowsy. Jesus was apparently a rather lengthy prayer. He enjoyed his time with the Father. And so while Jesus is praying, while Jesus is working through what's about to happen in his life, the disciples, and this is not the last time we're going to hear this, but the disciples fall drowsy and get sort of sleepy. Well, once they see the transfigured Jesus, and once they see Moses and Elijah, they come to their senses. Having just discussed with Moses and Elijah his exodus, the glory of Jesus is seen fully for the first time. Now, let's note that because that's interesting. It's interesting that the time in which you see the glory of Jesus most clearly and most fully is when he's talking about his rejection and his suffering and his death. How is it then that suffering and indignation and death go hand in hand with this kind of glory? We would think that if we're talking about this kind of glory, we'd be talking as he does earlier about his coming again with the glory of the Father and the glory of the heavenly angels. But no, Luke tells us that as he's talking to them about his departure, about what he's going to face in Jerusalem, that's the context in which his glory is most clearly seen. And very soon the disciples are going to see for themselves the rejection and the suffering and the death of Jesus. Now friends, the transfiguration is an encouragement to the Lord Jesus but it's also an object lesson for the disciples. For the disciples need to understand fully because it's going to become evident in their lives that glory and suffering are not the opposite of each other, but rather the way of the cross is that God is glorified through the suffering of his Son. Does the suffering negate the splendor? Does his rejection falsify his reign? Does his misery cancel his majesty? Now, it is the paradox of the cross that will become a central theme in the rest of the New Testament and of Christianity in general. Friends, that's, that's hard to get our hands around. It's hard to think about Jesus being fully human, needing to be heard, needing to be encouraged. It's also hard this morning for us to lay hold of the fact that it's the paradox of the cross that is the central theme of the New Testament, that God's suffering, the suffering of Christ, does not negate his splendor, that his rejection doesn't mean he's not king, that his misery cannot cancel his majesty. In fact, it's one of the things that was recovered in large extent in the Protestant Reformation. I love uh, thinking about and writing about uh, Luther and his theology of glory versus the theology of the cross or theology of suffering. Carl Truman says this, God reveals himself under his opposite or to express it another way. God achieves his intended purposes by doing the exact opposite of what humans might expect. The supreme example of this is the cross itself. 
God triumphs over sin and evil by allowing sin and evil to triumph, apparently, over him. The real strength is demonstrated through apparent weakness. Friends, if there's the paradox of Jesus being fully God and fully man and his glory then being seen fully through his suffering, that's the enigma on top of the paradox. Here is Jesus who needs to talk, who needs to be heard. No one on earth understands his heart, and so God sends him Moses and Elijah. And it's in that suffering, it's in that rejection, it's in Jesus' exodus that the glory of God is going to be seen most fully. And if we're not careful, we will miss it too. The theology of the cross has never been overly popular. We like a theology of glory. It's very American. It's very prime. It speaks to all of the worst angels of our nature. But the theology of the cross is what Jesus conveys to us. Now, Peter, of course, being Peter, and I love this. This is, this is one of the reasons why I, I, I just want to go shake his hand uh, someday when we get there. I love how Luke puts it. Uh, Peter, <laughs> Peter's talking, and he, uh, he tells us in verse 33, not knowing what he said. Hey, this is really heavy. This is really deep. Somebody say something, even if it's inappropriate. And here's Peter going, yep, I'm your guy. Hold my beer. So Peter says, hey, it's great that we're here. Let's build three houses. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and we can just hang out, right? We can, we can just continue to remember this wonderful transfiguration. See, what was meant as an encouragement, Peter wants to make an ongoing experience. He had this glimpse of God's glory, and Peter's like, yeah, that's where I want to stay. And I fear that we make the same mistake. We like those times of supernatural refreshment and awakening. We don't like the ordinary stuff of life. We love Sunday mornings. Not so much Monday morning when it's time to get up and go to work. And if we're not careful, we can make an idol out of the experience of these seasons of supernatural blessing. Hey, I saw something great. I heard something great. Man, the Lord was alive. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. We got some sense of the glory and splendor and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stay there. Well, no, God calls us to go out into the world. We're going to see it next week. As we sang, you have to leave the mountain. You have to come down and there's a plain that you have to dwell in. I saw this all the time when I was, um, when I first started in ministry again. I think I've told you this back in the day when if you were called to ministry when you were in your 20s, they decided you should be a youth minister. Now they make you a church planter. Uh, but back in the day, you were, a, you were a youth minister. And I remember taking kids to camp. And uh, taking kids to camp was uh, wonderful and awful at, at the same time for, for many reasons. But one of the things that always happened was kids, they'd go to camp and they're with 
you know, other Christian kids and it's a kind of a controlled environment. And at that point, uh, we're talking about a tradition and denomination that was really big on getting kids all excited and fired up and the whole nine yards. And, and there'd be an altar call every evening. And it seemed like every night it was up till midnight because one or seven of the kids that we brought, you know, were they they were doing serious work with the Lord. And I was always really thankful for that. And then on the way home, you could see these really excited, wonderful, on fire for Jesus kids. You could just see it was almost like like toddlers on a sugar high. Like they would, they would just start to crash. Because that wonderful experience of supernatural blessing, that season and that place that they'd associated with God really meeting them where they were, was now giving way to the fact that they had to go home to their families. Some of them had unbelieving parents. Some of them had unbelieving siblings. Some of them had absolutely awful home experiences. They were going to have to go back to school. And living for Jesus, even in the mid-1990s, in the Louisville public school system, was not an easy task. It's easy to get wrapped up and to make an idol out of that experience of a season of supernatural blessing. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. No, he calls us to live that out in the midst of a very ordinary, very mucky world. Thirdly, then, we have one mouth and two ears. Cliches, it said, are cliche for a reason. They capture an essential truth, and we remember them usually quite easily. And so as many of you know, God gave you one mouth and two ears because he wants you to listen twice as much as you talk. Luke's already told us that Peter is just talking. He has no idea what to say or even what he is saying. Again, Peter is my guy. And yet now at this point, we have God the Father speaking out of a cloud. And this is the part in which there's all kinds of Old Testament imagery that comes to play. Speaking out of a cloud brings to mind how God in a pillar of cloud led his people out of, out of Egypt through the wilderness, how he protected his servant Moses by the same cloud, and how God spoke to Moses and to his people through a cloud as he was giving them his law. And then in verse 35, he says that Jesus is his chosen one. It's another way of saying he is the anointed. In other words, he's talking about Psalm 2, the passage that Les read for us this morning. He is God's son. He is his chosen one. There are Old Testament allusions and images agogo through this entire, uh, these, these few words that God the Father speaks out of the cloud to the disciples. And here's the one that we want to pay attention to most. Listen to him. Listen to him. You see, up to this point in Luke's gospel, the great point of tension between Jesus and his disciples was Jesus was telling them what his life and what his ministry was really about. 
He was telling them how it is that he was going to accomplish exactly what it was that God had sent him into the world to do. The problem is what Jesus knew his mission and ministry to be did not coincide with how the disciples understood God's Messiah to operate. And so who's right? Does Jesus have a better understanding of what he's come to do? Or do the disciples have the proper understanding of what it is that Jesus is supposed to be doing? And it's a reminder to us that we can have a genuine confession of Jesus. Remember back in verse 20, when Jesus says, hey, who do they say that I am? And they say, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're Elijah. Some think you're one of the prophets back from the dead. Verse 20, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, bless his heart, gets it right. The Christ of God. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed. You're the son. You're the dude. You're the guy we've been looking for and waiting for. So you can have that genuine confession, but still need to grow in your understanding of what kind of Jesus you believe in. Saying that Jesus is my Lord and Savior is fantastic. But let's fill that out. What does it mean that he's Lord? What exactly is it that he saved you from? Now, in order to do that, we need to let Jesus define himself. That's what God tells us, isn't it? Hey, fellas, listen to him. He's going to tell you exactly what his mission is. He's going to tell you exactly why he came. He's going to tell you exactly what it is that he's doing. So stop casting Jesus into your own image. Just stop it. I love that skit. I think some of you have probably seen it. It's, you can find it on YouTube. Uh, Breck knows the one I'm talking about. Uh, it's a Bob Newhart skit. And he plays, not surprisingly, a, a psychiatrist. And a woman comes in to see him. And it's very funny. It's, it's kind of slow played, a la Bob Newhart. And he says, okay, I'm going to tell you two words. And you need to write this. She's like, do I need to write this down? And he's like, well, you can. But they're two words. You should be able to remember them. And she's like, okay, I'm ready. He's like, okay, are you, here it is. Stop it. And she's like, wait, there's, and he's like, no, really, it's not, just stop it. So when you find yourself wanting to cast Jesus into your own image, when you find yourself thinking you understand the message and the method and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you think you understand your plan for your life better than Jesus' plan for your life, stop it. Just stop it. Listen to him. Listen to him. Now, it's stunning. I love how this particular story concludes. I love how Luke writes it. And they kept silent <laughs> and told no one what they had seen. Uh, in those days, told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Good. They're starting to get it. 
they're starting to understand that Jesus is the one who needs to define his own life and ministry. They need to set aside all everything they think they know about the ministry and the message of God's Messiah, and they need to listen to Jesus. In a few moments, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And at the Lord's table, we see both the misery and the majesty, the suffering and the splendor, the rejection and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, as we come this morning, we need to identify with both of those things. Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed. It was done not because of anything that he had done, not because of any sin that he had committed. It was done for ours. And we need to remember also that the same suffering, the same Son of Man who's going to suffer and be rejected is also going to come again in the glory not just of his own, but the glory of God the Father and of the heavenly host. We identify and we come to the table, not just because of his rejection, but also because of his reign. He is coming again. And the table is a reminder to us that our God is faithful to the promises that he makes. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this text. Thank you uh, that Jesus uh, unlike anyone else, knows and understands and hears us, that he can sympathize with us in our weakness. And Father, we bless you that you are a God who is a giver of every good and perfect gift. And that when Jesus needed to be encouraged, that when he needed to be heard, that when he needed a couple people that he could talk with about the, the plan that you had for his life, you provided what he needed. Lord, we pray that this week we would trust you to provide what is necessary for us. We pray, Lord, in those instances in which uh, we're just struggling with needing to be heard, that, Lord, uh, we would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. We wouldn't grumble against people in our life. We wouldn't bash or badmouth our spouse because they just don't get us and they don't understand us. Father, instead, would we see that as an opportunity to turn to the one who completely gets us and completely understands us and loves us anyway. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.